Hello, and welcome to the podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Dave. I'm here with my other host, Emily, and we are talking to Mesh Seidel Casing. Mesh is a senior developer Hi. advocate at Amazon Web Services for containers, and very happy to have you on the show today. I'm excited and really hyped to get ready to start on the session, yeah. <laughs> So we had a, a little chat over the internal Amazon Slack. Um, you, we were talking about what you do, what does developer advocacy on a service team mean? And I know your approach is a little bit different than what we might see in you know typical DevRel where we have people out talking to the community at large. Uh, what has that journey been like? Uh, you know, how long have you been at AWS, and what's kind of your approach to the role and working with these large customers? So I've been in AWS for just over two years. I started as a solutions architect for uh, enterprise customers, mostly from the financial segment, banks, credit card companies, payment companies. But I've always been, I would say, interested and involved throughout most of my career on social media with blogs and webinars podcasts, um, giving sessions at conferences. So I was looking for an opportunity to move into a kind of a developer advocate role, which was something which I kind of say is my second job, which I was doing, has now become my main job, which I'm really, really enjoying without having to That's do it as That's super common, I think, hours. for people. Yeah. Yeah. So my, my wife actually asked me a couple of times, why do you look so calm and relaxed and i said because up until now i was doing two i would do, i was doing two kind two jobs almost full time working my day job and then doing all this um social networking and all the extra things which i did on my own spare time and i'm doing it full time so i'm a lot more relaxed also at home she even eats lunch with me every now and again so it's okay <laughs> but yeah that's awesome and so the the ecs team like explain a little difference between what you were doing as SA and what you're doing as a DA now and kind of the customer focus? So as an SA, you work with a customer and the customer is usually, in my case, we're mostly greenfield customers, people which were really new to the cloud. So it was a lot of um, education um, and introducing to them to cloud concepts, cloud security, how to trust the cloud, um, and dipping their toes into the water getting started. How do we hold, help them get ramped up on certain products? Usually starts with some kind of a control tower to set up some kind of a framework that they can start building and taking all the rest of the solutions further along their journey. But introducing them to products based on either their requirements or their goals that they wanted to get to different kinds of projects, different kinds of new products they wanted to release. So there was no real focus on one specific AWS product or suite of products. So I could um, speak with one customer one day about Redshift, the next day about um, data lakes, the next one about containers, the next one about IEM security. It depends on the customer and different departments within the organization. And there was no really one focus from my side on one specific AWS um, product or suite of products. It was pretty much um, all over the show. How did you keep all of that straight? I mean, I think so. I, I've learned to somewhat loathe the term expert because it it implies that you know you know so many aspects of tech and tech is just so diverse. There's no way we know all these things about all these different topics. How did you how did you kind of keep all that in your head? Um, so 
Firstly, I don't think anybody or any one person in Amazon, with maybe the exception of one or two people, actually know what all the services are and how they all work. Um, That's a relief because I've been stressed if, about that. <laughs> I also don't. But I mean, we have more of a, we have more than two hundred services today in Amazon in AWS, so it's impossible to keep up to par and be an expert in every single one of them. So. That's what we have. The, the, when you're an SA, you're usually a generalist, and you focus on specific pieces with your customer. You dive deep with your customer to learn what they're working on. You learn about those products. Like, for example, I never knew anything about data lakes before I started um, working in my whole career. I didn't, I'm still, I would have to say I'm not very good um, or very well-versed in machine learning. But um, I can understand the concept. And, of course, as an organization, the sales organization has the option to pull in the required resources, if it's with the service teams, if it's with specialists, if it's with our technical field communities, we can bring all those people into uh, into these conversations with the customers when the actual account solutions architect is not well-versed well, well, well versed enough with the, um, with, with the subject or the subject matter that they're talking about. I had a, a little internal chuckle when you said, uh, you know, you're not, you're not totally familiar with machine learning. I would argue there's like five PhDs that understands machine learning and the rest of us are just like, okay, yeah, I think I follow. Winging it. <laughs> I think, yeah. Yes, exactly. Yes, <laughs> I was it's so much math. It's too oh, much hey. math. And like, that is not my skill to be totally blunt. <clears throat> I was talking to someone new to the industry yesterday and uh, they were asking just how, how to kind of dive into things. And like, some of it is just ask a lot of questions, be curious and fake it till exactly. you make it. Like we, you know, we're all learning. Um, so it's my understanding that you work a lot with enterprise customers. Um, what is an enterprise? I, I think we use this term all the time. And I, I was just like, what is it? What counts as an enterprise? It's a very, I would say, amorphic term because an enterprise could mean something from, um, if I, for example, where I live in Israel, um, an enterprise customer could be anything over, say, a thousand employees in the company. And if that we were talking about that kind of a customer or that size of a company in the US or in Europe, these would be perhaps maybe a small startup of a thousand people. Um, so it's pretty fluid and it will v- diversify from, from, from different country to country, from segment to segment to different geographies. So there's no re- one, um, I would, I, the way I would classify an enterprise customer is that there is clear delineation between security, IT, and developers inside the organization. In other words, they're not one person doing everything. There's different Mm -hmm. departments and people which are hired to manage different parts of the company. Um, There's a VP of development. There's a VP of... There's a chief security officer, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Chief information officer. There's a number of different... They come big enough to have different departments, different people working on specific things. And when that starts to happen, those things kind of start getting derailed about how people want to work in cloud, which was the whole reason that I wanted to kind of get on this podcast and to see how that differs when we talk about enterprise companies, which have developers inside how they work in the cloud, which is slightly different from what we're kind of used to, I think. Yeah, I I always kind of... um, I'm amused by companies that have, you know, 12 plus chiefs. It's like, we have a chief this and a chief that. And I'm like, you're just making up acronyms at this point, Um, but good for you. (laughs) So like, tell me more about this, this 
sort of segmented setup between developers and security um, and, you know, IT or infrastructure or platform engineering, however they sort of call it that. How does that impact how enterprises approach the cloud, how they make decisions about the cloud and, and various services? So I think, excuse me, I think the biggest barrier for customers which are trying to move to the cloud is not the fact that they don't have the opportunity to use the technology. It's mostly their internal processes and their um, regulation or the way they work, which kind of stop or put spokes in the wheel. Because in, for example, in AWS, and every AWS employee can get with more or less the push of a button an AWS account of their own. Of course, there are guardrails that we have in place in order to protect the information. And there's things we're allowed to do, there's things we're not allowed to do. It's all pretty clear and um, well-documented and everybody which comes into the, into the organization understands that. But when you talk to an enterprise customer, specifically companies which are starting out, you'll say, okay, you need to send in a trouble ticket for somebody to open up an account for you. And that can take 15 days. And then Ooh. you're not allowed to have an administrator um, permissions on the account. You only get a slightly less developer permission because if you have administrator permissions in these kind of accounts, you might be able to do something which could compromise the company in some way because not necessarily do they have all these guardrails in place from the beginning, which allow us to do what we currently do in this kind of manner. It takes time to build those things for each and every customer. Unfortunately, there is no one boilerplate that you say, here's a template of control tower and it works because every single mm -hmm. customer is going to be different. So you either have to work with a partner or your account team in order to get those things built up, also work with the teams themselves in the, by the customer to understand what their what their limits are, how much of how much um, control are they willing to give away to the developers? And that will vary from customer yeah. to customer to allow them to do what they want to do and how to get how to get moving. I think this is a fascinating trade off because with an enterprise, you're more it's more about risk management than going fast. Exactly, and so there's this balance, and you're you're trading you know, velocity or acceleration of your developer productivity for this, you know, not rocking the boat, not opening us up to um, security vulnerabilities or government inquiries or whatever it is. Exactly. Do, do these enterprises make purchasing decisions or implementation decisions as, you know, a whole, or is it kind of split into organization, team by team? Like, and it probably varies, but what do you see as common? So from, 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 my, from my experience, of course, it will vary, but usually you have a development team and there's somebody which is, has their, their hand on the, on, the, on, on, the, on the faucet to say, can I open it up or close it up? In other words, I, I control the money and those two usually never, ever meet together. So you always have to come up with some kind of a design document and a plan. How much is this going to cost me for the next three years on my... Um, account for this application, which as we know in cloud is not really the way to work because you don't plan things for three years ahead because in three years or three years ago, nobody knew what Kubernetes was and nobody built anything for Kubernetes. And look where we are today, yeah. where the technology and KubeCon, which was just a couple of um, last week, becomes one of the most biggest, the biggest conferences in, in, in throughout the whole IT world in the year. So they, they yeah. have to mostly have go under, undergo a culture change and organizational change, and in a way, give away control of what they were used to up until now to the developers. And that takes time in order to 
get them confident with what they're doing, allow them enough guardrails in place and security controls to make sure that they're giving the developers the tools, the the mechanisms which which they can build quickly and provide value to their to the company without compromising the most important thing, which is the security and their IP, which they're working on. I have a I have a question for you. Um, one of the coolest things, and I'm going to be doing this again during reInvent. Like I had all of these customer meetings all day long, and a question that I was asking folks, and I'd love to get your take on this, is the impact of the pandemic. And what is, how is that approach in a, where you have separation of concerns within these different business areas at these companies? So I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, I, there's two interesting anecdotes that I got. The first one was there, there were teams literally that couldn't do anything because they needed to ramp up a team to build the infrastructure to do the coding remotely. Like before the pandemic, there were customers that the entire development, they hadn't even thought about this, right? But the entire development process was based in a building. There was not like once in a while, maybe you could VPN and it blew my mind. And it literally, uh, I guess I could say this, like some of them were like major game developers and it pushed back game releases because they literally could not write and code. There was no DevOps process, nothing. And it actually matured a lot of these organizations around how do you move up through CICD because of the pandemic. The second interesting thing I heard was because everyone was remote, was the impact on senior engineers that senior engineers did not get to see junior engineers grow. You're not in an office where people can just walk over and say, how does this work? How did it? And there was like this loss of, of mentorship. And I'm just curious, I mean, you just, when you were talking about that separation of concerns, have you been seeing that with customers lately? Have you seen a pandemic? Have, have people decided to take versus a monolith, monolithic approach and, and move everything to the cloud to start ramping up individual services? What does that change kind of look like? So as always, it depends. Like we have a very good answer on everything. It always depends. It will depend on the customer. There's some customers which... I think that the pandemic that we've had in the past where people have been working at home, working over Zoom and Chime or whatever else it is, has been an amazing opportunity for them to change the way they work. In other words, up until now, as you said, there were companies and most of my customers that I was working for, the enterprise customers, they had an office. In other words, in order for you to access the email inside the office, you had to have either computer in the office or VPN into the company. There was no such a thing as checking your mail on your mobile phone because they weren't open to the outside world. These are kind of these are kind of companies that um, that I was working with. And all of a sudden you see that people have no office to come into. So we have to find a solution where in this case, a lot of them were very, very grateful for the cloud because they were able to bring up resources, allow them to use virtual desktops and workspaces to get a working environment which was secure, not located in their laptop or in their home um, computer. It was monitored, it was centrally controlled, but still connected to the corporate network and allowed them to do the work without having to actually physically come into an office. So, and they didn't have to come and in this case also re-provision re, um, all the laptops or home computers either because it was a sound, in this case on the workspaces, it was a one of the clients you install, you log in, manage by Active Directory, and you're into your 
Windows development environment, your Linux development environment, where you can start working as if you were working in the office, which was not something which, if you would take a, a gen, uh, generic enterprise customers that I was working to, in order to bring up a project like that, would take something between eight to 12 months on a regular basis. And in here, because of the situation we were all in and the ease of deployment of these kind of resources in the cloud, we were managed to do these things within three weeks, which brought them up to speed very, very quickly. It does present, of course, challenges from security mm-hmm. perspective. How do you trust different resources, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it made things a lot easier for them. But on the other hand, That's there were also companies amazing. which, yeah, there were also other companies as well, which didn't manage to adapt to that. And you say, of course, like they, they lose people because people don't come into the office. They don't work together. As you say, there's no interaction. Not everybody has the ability to work with Zoom because of originally, I don't know if you all remember, there was a whole thing about where's the traffic routing through? Is it going through China? Is it going through Russia? Is it going through different places? And they weren't allowed to use Zoom because of security and regulation reasons. So they had to either use their crappy old system, which they were using up until now, which wasn't made for automatically bursting to 3,000 people working from home at the same time, and things fell over. Some companies bloomed, some didn't. A lot of people are moving around at all different places because of this as well, I think. From engineering, from IT, people are understanding that not necessarily the way I've worked up until now, if it'd been an office and I had a certain responsibility of managing the firewall in my organization. That was the only thing that I can do. They see that there's other ways to do things besides that. I have a op- the opportunity to make a much bigger impact, learn new things, to diverse my knowledge. Uh, it, it's a big, it has been a big change for a lot of people, I think. It's kind of amazing. And I think, you know, I think in terms of DevOps and reliability, and I've started leaning more toward resiliency and flexibility in those ways because we couldn't have planned for this. You know, you can, you can talk about error budgets and and planning for these types of events or incidents till you're blue in the face. No one saw this coming. And so, you know, be, unless, you know, I'm sure there was a random scientific paper 11 years ago that predicted exactly this and good for them, but (laughs) the rest of us were woefully unprepared. Only one. (laughs) Um, And yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's more about being able to be agile in the truest sense of the word and, and flexible and meeting the needs of the moment than it is preparing for every possible outcome, I would think. Exactly. Yeah. When you work with enterprises, um, like what do you see as the the customer concerns? And that can be related. I know you work a lot with ECS and, and containers, but also just generally, like what are the questions you hear the most? With Greenfield customers, it's usually the building the trust in the beginning. How am I sure that Amazon or AWS is not looking at my stuff? In other words, to build the trust in the beginning yeah. that we have with our uh, customer obsession and earn trust or two of our LPs, which we really, really believe in. And it's working with the security people and bringing in the right regulation people to explain to them what exactly we do, where the responsibility lies within the boundary of what we call the shared responsibility model, what we're in charge of, what the customer are in charge of. And sometimes it's hard for them to understand. For example, if I say, if um, you're, when I bring up a virtual machine or an instance on AWS, AWS won't patch it for me, won't install patches or, or um 
packages learn from me when I ask them when, when there's a new security vulnerability, which has just come out of zero day. So we say, unfortunately, no, because that's, there's a clear delineation of what AWS is responsible for and what the customer is for. And it takes them customers' time f- to understand those things. The second thing is, of course, as we have um, a peculiar culture in, a- in enabled AWS and Amazon, it also takes time for those customers to get used to that because usually they're used to a vendor coming in, say, my thing is the best that I have, buy it, and you'll never have a worry in the world. It could, there, are, there are a couple of vendors which do that without a problem. And I sell you the best product. It's the best, the fastest thing you can find. And when they speak to people in AWS, I think the engagement is on a completely different level. That's also as part of our training as we do as solutions architects. We engage in a way that we don't provide the simple answers. We continue to challenge our customers on a regular basis to ask them, okay, you've done this, but why... Why did you do that? Why did you choose those things? What made you go down that path to help them understand how to evolve better and become better versions of themselves? And we're there just to provide the tools if they want them. We won't ever say, I'm not going to be pushing down a service that you have to buy for the next three years in order for us, for you to talk to me. You can pay by the hour, switch it off and go to another vendor if you would like. And it's sometimes... It happens, and it happened a number of times, that I would recommend an external vendor, not AWS, because it was better for the customer to use that as part of the solution. Because we are customer obsessed, we care about the customer, and we want what is best for them, that they can be successful. I love that you challenge customers and ask questions. I think that's really healthy. And, and Mish, where, like, what's next for you? I know we have reInvent coming up. What's got you excited? What, where's, your, where's your head at? So as being, I would say, kind of cooped up in my own country for the past 18, 19 months, I'm very, very happy to finally get on a plane and go out of the country, which will be very nice. Um, So I'm going to be at reInvent. I'm going to be giving um, two sessions, actually three sessions, a workshop, a chalk talk, and a builder session, which you're more than welcome. And the registration for the sessions opened up, I think, yesterday evening, so um, or two days ago, I can't remember when we ever re-record this. Okay, I'll put that. So, yeah, I'll put the um, links go and the register for the sessions. Yeah. Definitely. Um, and as I also posted on Twitter, I personally think that the value of coming to some kind an event like this is actually being there physically and speaking to people. In other words, don't only um, so for, for, so for me that means reach out to others. Ping me if you would like. Come and find me in the hallway track. Come and find me in a booth. Come and find me in a session. Be happy to buy a cup of coffee. Talk about anything. Cloud, AWS containers, life, religion, if we're allowed to talk that, all right? But anyway, um, reach out to people. Get to know new people. It is, the think, the interaction that we actually all need. It's been a long time missing, personally. So I'm really, really looking to actually coming to reInvent, actually meeting my team part of my team for the first time face-to-face, which I haven't done wow. over the past six months. So it'll also be nice. I love it. I, I couldn't agree more. Uh, and where can uh, folks find you on Twitter? So my Twitter handle is MaishSK, M-A-I-S-H-S-K. It'll also be here in the show notes. I'm MaishSK pretty much everywhere except for LinkedIn, which I'm without the SK at the end. Um, but everywhere else you can find me on Twitter. My direct messages are open. Please feel free to send me a message, reach out. I'd be happy, happy to chat anything, as I say, anything you have to talk about. I love it. Thank you for coming on the show today. Super appreciate it. Awesome. It was awesome.